Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire. Sarah is the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. Today we're going to be talking about disability awareness and various issues facing the local and state disability communities. We have four guests with us today. Leslie Green is the current Stonebelt CEO. Bitta DeWeese is the incoming Stonebelt CEO and the current Chief Operating Officer. Deanne Hart is American Council of the Blind of Indiana's Legislative and Advocacy Committee Chair. And Hannah Carlock is with the ARC of Indiana. She's Public Policy Director. If you have questions or comments, please send them to us at, uh, new, at news.indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and send us your questions there. We're still not in the studio, but we hope to be soon. So thank you all for being here with us today. And Leslie, first of all, I want to congratulate you on, on a wonderful career with Stonebelt. I know you are retiring, so congratulations. We've worked together for many years, and I know that the organization is going to miss you. Oh, thank you, Bob. It's a, it's a bittersweet uh, departure. I'm looking forward to the next chapter, but I certainly have loved what I've de- done here. I found a career that suited me so well and sort of accidental, but uh, it's been a great, great time. So oh, thank I'm, you very much. Sure thing. If I was going to ask you a, a, you know, a really general question and, you know, and you could probably spend the rest of the show talking about this, but I'd like to, for you to limit your answer to a, a short one. I mean, what do you think is the, is the state of affairs right now for Stonebelt and for the services you provide? Well, if you compare where we're at now, where, where we were in 79 when I started, we've made tremendous progress for people with developmental disabilities. When I started, most many, many people were in state institutions, and now those state institutions are closed in Indiana, and we have many more people living out in the community and living full and productive lives. It's a challenge, though. Uh, The COVID situation has set us back quite a bit. We were not able to continue to offer all of the services that that we've provided in the past. We're trying to come back from that and and start to move forward. But we, like a lot of other people, are having a lot of workforce issues. Now, you know, I've been on the show before and talked about workforce issues, but they're exacerbated significantly from the COVID um, shut down and trying to recover from that. So it's, it's kind of a tough time. We'll get into a lot more of that uh, soon. I want to, to bring Bitta DeWeese in. So you'll be replacing, uh, if you, if you can really replace Leslie Green, you'll be, you'll be in her job uh, as the CEO of Stonebelt. Um, what is your, you know, what's your number one priority, Bitta? I mean, what do you see as the number one thing that you need to do switching jobs from the chief operating officer to the CEO. Um, Hi, Bob. Thanks. Well, I'd say the number one priority of our whole agency, and it has been for a while, is what Leslie just mentioned, stabilizing the workforce and bringing more clients back into services. I have mentored under Leslie for 31 years as I've worked at Stonebelt. So my main goal is to carry on the good works that she started and attempt to fill those really big shoes. All right. Hannah Carlock from the ARC of Indiana. Could you explain the relationship between uh, the ARC of Indiana and uh, Stonebelt and other agencies? 
Yes, definitely. Thanks for having me on. And um, we are very excited for Leslie's new chapter to start in her life, but we are greatly going to miss her. So Stone Belt is just one of 43 chapters across the state of Indiana that are a part of the Ark of Indiana. Um, so they help us on the local level. Um, so I'm statewide, so I have to um, have relationships with all 150 of Indiana's state legislators. And Leslie and Stonebelt, uh, Stonebelt helped me have a more localized relationship with your guys' local state representatives and state senators so they can share their stories and how the legislature is impacting local Hoosiers with intellectual and developmental disabilities and the Bloomington area. And so they help make those connections. They do different visits with legislature with different legislators in the area, and they share their personal stories. Um, and then they also come to the state house too to do some visits up there um, with legislators as well. What was the biggest issue coming out of this this year's session? This year's legislative session um, just ended this week, and uh, there were a few wins for Hoosiers with disabilities, but the main topic was managed care. So managed care is very complex. It's about um, the coverage and services that Hoosiers with disabilities receive, and um, so we want to make sure that um, that Hoosiers with disabilities get to choose what services that they receive and live their best life and specifically live in their homes if that's what they choose to do. And so we want to make sure that um, if the state enters into managed care, um, that we do it right. And so legislators were um, just dipping their toe into what is managed care, because as we all know, insurance is very complex. A lot of people don't under even, even understand what their own health insurance does and covers. And so legislators were trying to be educated on that. And so they have extended um managed care and the conversations into next January. So the state will not be entering into managed care and insurance around managed care until next January. And so that gives us more time to work with Leslie and Stonebelt and um, just really educate legislators on how managed care will impact Hoosiers with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Um, another thing that was passed was um, ABLE accounts that our um, Hoosiers can help save for um, disability-related um, services and equipment. And um, ABLE accounts starting next year, um, if you start to save money in your ABLE account, you'll receive up to a $500 tax credit. Um, so we're excited to see that tax benefit. Last thing I will cover is um, the state's lemon law. And um, currently accessible vehicles are not included in the state's lemon law. But hopefully Governor Holcomb will sign um, House Bill 1073 to include accessible vehicles in the state's lemon law. So if you are having an issue with your vehicle or with the accessible feature, you know, like um, a wheelchair ramp and you're having issues with it, it will now be covered under the state's lemon law so that the manufacturer can help get that fixed. All right. And our fourth guest today is Deanne Hart. Indiana is with the American Council of the Blind of Indiana, and uh, you are the legislative and advocacy, advocacy chairman. So first, I want to know, you know, what your council's goals are. And then second, I want to ask you about the legislative session. Okay. Um, our, our goals are to advocate for our members and the blindness community to have as much accessibility as possible. Our this year we were watching the service animal bill that was going through the legislature and also the um, transportation bill that uh, covered the purple line in Indianapolis but also affected other transportation providers across the state and as well as we always keep an eye on our voting um, voting laws that are being passed because they always have an effect on how we will be able to vote in future elections. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit, the, the issue of, of voting laws and how those could restrict people who have uh, issues with blindness from voting? Well, several years ago when, um, when the Help Americans Vote Act was passed, it made uh, polling places accessible for people with disabilities. 
and it made equipment in those polling places accessible so people could come into the polls and they could vote with in an accessible manner. However, it did not cover accessible absentee voting. Um, and we um, have been working for the last couple years on addressing that issue. Um, back about five years ago, there was legislation passed that said that people could vote ex um, absentee except for the blind who would need to have assistance with filling out the ballot because, and because they could not sign their own signature. Um, we are working to, um, I'm going to alleviate those barriers and so that we can um, vote at home like anyone else would with a mailed in ballot. Okay, this this is Sarah Whitmire. Thank you all for being here today. Hannah, I know you've spent a lot of time at the State House. Can you just talk about some of the details of House Bill 1242? Um, yes, yeah, so um, let me look up House Bill 1242, um, just because my brain is a little mush from having... <laughs> To, to memorize all um, bill numbers. Yeah, that's the one that was meant to improve the transparency of employment programs for Hoosiers with disabilities. Oh. Yes, so that passed unanimously out of the House and Senate and is headed to the governor. Um, and um, to be honest with you, I don't have a whole lot of information on that bill. We were tracking that bill, um, but that's, I don't really have a whole lot of information on that. Can you talk about where Indiana stands compared to other states and providing um, opportunities and securing employment for people with disabilities? Yeah, so um, that is actually one of our big agenda items is employing Hoosiers with disabilities. So we have actually been in conversations with the governor's office and are working to get um, a Hoosier with a disability on the governor's workforce cabinet um, because we are trying to fill that. We have a major workforce shortage in Indiana and why not fill it with Hoosiers with disabilities because we have a great pipeline of Hoosiers with disabilities that want to fill that that gap. Um, I would say like one of the biggest issues that we're facing just across the nation, but in Indiana is institutional bias. So we have um, still have a lot of workshops across the United States and in Indiana where um, a lot of Hoosiers with disabilities are working on um, a 14C waiver, which that means that they don't have to be paid minimum wage. And so they can be paid like at a piece rate. Um, and so a lot of ARC providers across the state of Indiana are trying to transition away from workshops and um, really start building on um, employment, just employment, employability and um, just different skills on, you know, showing up the soft skills, like showing up for work on time and how to, you know, fill out a application, how to interview, um, have a really good interview. And then um, working with the Manufacturers Association, the different state chambers on how to get away from the bias that employers have and the stigma that employers have around hiring a person with a disability because a lot of them think that's going to cost them a lot of money to you know accommodate a person with a disability and that's not true so we're trying to work from different avenues on getting hoosiers um have us uh, hoosiers with disabilities have a step into uh open that door and have a step into the workforce um hoosier workforce because we definitely know that we can help a lot of different employers fill their workforce needs um, with hoosiers with disabilities it's just going to take a little bit of time but at least the state and leaders across the state are starting to have those conversations with us always a matter of time and education if if you have uh if our listeners have any questions about uh these issues about people with disabilities you can follow us on twitter at noon edition and send us your questions there you can also uh, send us email to news at indiana public media.org uh, i wanted to ask leslie 
uh, and Bitta to sort of weigh in on that and about the transition from workshops to, you know, placement of people. Um, Leslie, I, I know that you've been in that transition for a long time. So, yes, and Bob, I'm going to defer to Bitta because she's really a, an employment expert. So she, she has a lot to contribute to this conversation. All right. Thanks, Bob. I have been at Stonebelt for 31 years, and during that time, our employment programs have been a piece of my job the entire time. Stonebelt has a really extensive community employment program and has always pushed and advocated for people with disabilities to work in the community. Right now is actually an excellent time for people to find jobs. Employers are are desperate for employees. It's not just Stonebelt. It's every employer out there who's struggling to find a good, strong workforce. So that's giving us an opportunity to really continue to educate and help employers understand that people with disabilities are absolutely part of that solution for them. We get calls every day from employers asking if we have um, clients who who can fit this skill set or fit that skill set. So it's really a wonderful time. And in our strategic planning process last year, we actually identified employment as a key goal for all of our day programs. So while we have goals to continue to grow and develop our community employment program to reach more people, we are looking at our 14C program and working with our with the employers that provide work there to increase the value of the jobs that they send to Stonebelt so that the wages for clients will go up in those workshops because they'll be higher value higher paid jobs. And then within our day services, which are currently called lifelong learning and which are activity-based programs, we do activities both in the community and the facility. We are shifting the focus to employment and we're going to work on exactly what Hannah was just talking about, those soft skills, those pre-employment skills. So we'll continue to do activities like art and recreation, but we'll be focusing on things like communication skills and social skills, and conflict resolution, and team building, and all of the kinds of skills you need to have no matter where you work, so that we're really trying through all of our programs to position our clients to be more prepared for community employment, should that be their choice. I'll follow up on the workshops. What kind of, um, what kind of things are you, are you working on in the workshops? So, Bob, we've had a long-term relationship with Cook. And that relationship continues to be very strong today. And we do assembly of some medical products for them. And uh, over, the, over the course of a year, we make almost 6 million pieces, the employees that, that are work, doing that work. So it's been a great job uh, training program for the individuals we support. Many of them are able to move from that, or, that environment into a work environment. And some people may move back into a workshop environment if they need to slow their lives down a little bit and, and uh, you know, do something something different. So it's been very successful, and we want to continue that relationship. It just may change over time in terms of how we how we accomplish it. Deanne, in, in your with your organization and in your area, how uh, do you go about placing people in in jobs? Well, we as a membership organization understand that 70% of our our population is unemployed or underemployed. Mm-hmm. And we, we do strive to try to break down um, stigma and barriers to employment. Um, we find that attitudes of employers, um, understanding that all people, whether they have a disability or not, have skills that they can use in the workplace is one of our biggest uh, things that we try to um, educate people about. We also um, realize that um, my skills may be different than the next person with a visual impairment. And so we try to make people understand that um, just because one person comes in and can't do the job doesn't mean the next person can't. Yeah, I want want to follow up on this and, and ask about this in a kind of general way because I know um, in conversations previously with with Leslie, at least, um, 
there is there are myths about hiring people who have disabilities and i think that we've talked before about how a lot of people who have disabilities turn out to be you know exceptional um team members in workplaces and i just want to give you all a chance to talk about that well i would say you know we're typically more loyal um more consistent we try to strive to do more than our share of the work um, if we if we see something we can do, we'll reach out and say to our I've, or I, I know I've experienced this, reached out and shared with my supervisor, I think I can do that over there that you're handing off to somebody else because you're making the assumption that I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Leslie, can you talk address that? Yeah, so I, what I would say is my experience has been, especially for people that are getting their first job, their first paycheck from a, an employer, that there's a there's an eagerness and there's a excitement about that. It is it's a new experience for a lot of people. Now, you know, we've been doing this for thirty some years, so it's not necessarily a new experience for mm-hmm. most some people now. But there is an attitude of real positivity for most people, and I think the employers recognize that, and also the coworkers. I think it also um, can bring people to a business. Many people will patronize certain businesses because they hire people with disabilities. It becomes such a part of our identity, our job. When we first meet people, they usually ask, what's your name? And the second question is, what do you do? And when people with disabilities can answer that question, it increases their self-esteem. It increases their belief in themselves and their and increases other people's understanding of people with disabilities abilities and doesn't just focus on their disability. I think that that increase in confidence is part of what makes people loyal to their employer as well. For the first time to be given an opportunity, they bring that excitement to the work environment. We've had many employers tell us that By hiring somebody, certainly they gained an employee who was skilled to do the job, but it also changed the tone of the workplace and it changed coworkers and people worked more effectively together. So it really can have a much larger impact and it's really dynamic to watch that happen. I'm sorry, go go ahead, Leslie. I was just going to say, we and we dispel a lot of myths with employers about that this person's going to cost more in workers' compensation or that they're going to have to do a lot of adaptations. And, you know, all of that has been proven not to be true. There are sometimes adaptations, but most most of those are less than $100. And it may just, it may not cost anything. It may just be moving a workstation a little bit or, or changing work hours or, you know, looking at the duties a, a little differently. So it's, it's, uh, it is not a burden on the employers. Deanne, I think you, you gave the number 70%, maybe people who would more than 70%, more than 70% people who were underemployed or unemployed. Correct. Um, I'm curious. So, so right now, you know, it feels like everyone is facing a shortage of qualified employees. Is that helping folks who have disabilities? I, I have read that there has been opportunities that have come um, come about during the shortage that has uh, um, increased um, employment in some areas, but still there is still that um, gap in people that understand that, you know, people do have the skills to do more jobs than their being given the opportunity to. I would add to that. It's it's helping, but it's slow. It's still complicated very much by the pandemic. There are pe- people with disabilities are often um, at greater risk from COVID because of health conditions they have. So not everybody's ready to go back in the workforce, even though the workforce may be ready for people to rejoin. I don't think all employers recognize the labor pool of people with disabilities. So we've got an incredible opportunity right now to continue that education. But we also are specifically seeing numbers increase. And like I said earlier, more employers actually calling us to say, 
Do you have anybody that can do this job? One of the things we work really hard on at Stonebelt is making sure that's a good job match. So we know the skills our clients have and we analyze what the employer needs and try and make a match there so that they'll be more successful. This is D. When you have 60% of your employers that have a hesitancy about hiring people with disabilities, it's you have to sell the person with a disability. I want to follow up about about COVID and what are you know COVID has made life uh, difficult for everybody the last two years. So how has it affected specifically um, the disability community? So what I would say, when, when we first learned about COVID, we were so frightened because while some of the individuals we support can really understand health and safety measures they need to take, others would not really be able to comprehend that not wearing a mask or being in public or getting close to someone would could put them at risk. So we had to really go to extraordinary measures of keeping people safe and in some ways really went against our mission, which was so painful in that our mission is to get people, you know, living, learning, working out in the community. And we were having to say, you know, you're going to need to stay home more or you're going to need to be less mobile. So, and that took a real toll on the individuals and, and their emotional uh, health. And it also took us a real uh, hit on our staff because now all of a sudden, people are spending more time at home and sort of languishing. And that is not a real exciting work environment. It's not like getting someone out so they can go to the Y or go to their job or, so it's, it's been a, it's been a downer and it's, and we've gone up and down, you know, last summer we were starting to kind of climb out and then Delta and then Omicron hit. And so the emotional yo-yo that this has been on everybody has, it's really taken its toll. Leslie, that's fa- that's really a fascinating point to me because I, I would think that, and I think we've talked about, you know, a lot of times it's overcoming, you know, discomfort in working with or being around somebody who's different or even a fear. And so when you break, you're trying to very hard to break down those barriers. And then all of a sudden you've got something where you have to put up some barriers. Yeah, exactly. It was, as I said, it, I felt like at times we were having to make decisions that went against our mission, but it had to be health and safety first. And, and fortunately, we, you know, now we're able to start, you know, trying to get get back into shape. But, um, you know, people have also gotten used to being home where they used to go every day to, to uh, you know, to work or to some, some other activity. And so now just getting somewhat motivated to get back into their regular life is is a is a challenge. Not everybody. Some some are ready to go right now, but you know we're having to kind of get repatterned into what a daily life looks like. We have a question that's been uh, sent in to us um, by our, an audience member, and it says it really dovetails with what you're talking about. How many remote work opportunities are available to Stonebelt clients? How how has this shifted opportunities available to people with disabilities? Yeah. Um, We had one client that continued working remotely during the pandemic, and um, he works for IU, and he shifted, excuse me, to working remotely. He's now doing sort of a hybrid. He wanted the social opportunity, so he's back working at IU, but can still work remotely as needed. Another interesting um, situation was we actually, when the pandemic first hit, had 16 clients that continued working because even when everything was shut down because they were essential workers, they were in jobs that were deemed essential and they were able to continue. As we are bringing new people into employment services, that's very much a question and can often be a goal of some clients to find a job working remotely. And I think the way the world has changed, that absolutely is increasing those opportunities. I don't know of somebody specifically recently that's been hired that way, but that's a skill set our job coaches have gained and learned to help somebody search for that type of employment. You're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, and our guests are here to talk about uh, issues of accessibility, issues that face people with disabilities 
uh, in Monroe County and the entire state of Indiana. We have four guests. Leslie Green, the current Stone Belt CEO, Bitta DeWeese, who's the incoming Stone Belt CEO and current Chief Operating Officer, Deanne Hart from the American Council of the Blind of Indiana. She's the Legislative and Advocacy Committee Chair. And also Hannah Carlock, who is the ARC of Indiana Public Policy Director. If you have questions for us, you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also uh, send them to us over Twitter. We're at Noon Edition. Hannah, I wanted to ask you about some of the policy areas that uh, you believe there's been progress in the last um, five to 10 years in Indiana in these areas. Yes. Yeah, so um, I would say special education has definitely come a long way um, in Indiana. And so we are seeing um, instead of segregation of the general population of student, students versus the special education students, um, there's definitely more integration there. There's definitely more opportunities for our um, students receiving special education services. There is now a alternate diploma instead of a student um, going through high school um, they and re only receiving a certificate of completion. There is now an alternate diploma because I feel like that's another barrier that a lot of Hoosiers with disabilities are facing when they're trying to get a job is they can't mark that they have a high school diploma. And now with this new alternate diploma that takes away some of the math that they are required to do, because that's been a lot of the hiccup um, and barrier to receiving that diploma, um, they can now uh, go through an alternate math course and receive a actual high school diploma. There has, as with the graduate new graduation pathways out there, a student can really um, tailor their different courses in high school and um, and workforce gaining workforce knowledge and having a taste of what it's like to be in the workforce um, and tailoring their diploma to what they really want to do outside of school because, um, you know, college isn't for everybody. Maybe you really want to be in the workforce right afterwards and continue training. And so we've seen um, just being able to tailor your the new diploma pathways to fit your needs has definitely helped um, the special education population. So that's been um, a huge resource for students, especially Hoosiers with disabilities. And then um, just all the services that Hoosiers with disabilities are now able to receive through the different Medicaid waivers um, and that we're now trying to tailor it to what they want to do. And I know um, Stonebelt does a really great job at this. They really look at what the person wants to do during that day and try to make sure that their services are around what that person wants to do. So it's not just everybody has to sit around receiving the same services. They really try to tailor it to each individual person. I think that we've come a long way there as well. Bitta, I want to ask you about the new strategic plan at Stonebelt. The 2022-23 strategic plan has some structural changes that are outlined in it. Can you talk a little bit about these areas and then how you're going to implement those changes as well? Yeah, I think we've reorganized, excuse me, <clears throat> our residential services to have our group home program and our supported living program under shared leadership. They each have directors responsible for implementing the programs, but we're really looking to gain resources and consistency and overall quality by having those two programs under one leadership. So those would be their goals going forward. And just for clarity, group homes are homes that Stonebelt owns where five or six people live together. Supported living is a more individualized program. It's usually two or three people living together in an apartment that they rent together or a home that they rent together. The biggest changes will probably come with what I talked about earlier, the employment first model that we're implementing across our day programs. And we have one leader over all three of those programs so that we can build on the experiences of each program and make sure they're really aligned in terms of teaching and training 
and building that foundation for employment for adults with disabilities. And then in our clinical services, we are exploring what resources the community needs and whether there's any opportunity for Stonebelt to offer more clinical services within this community and what the feasibility of some of that would be. We're also working to grow our recreation um, and skills programs, which really work on targeted areas with clients out in the community, and then also grow our behavioral support services. And again, all of those are under one leadership so that they can kind of be united as they look for those opportunities. And those are really the biggest program areas targeted in our strategic plan where we're trying to make some changes going forward. Okay. Aren't you, you're also doing some things to deal with um, just the pay structure, right? How, what, what does retention with your staff look like right now? We have adjusted our pay structure. The state has passed through some funds that allow us to increase the wages for our direct support professionals. And we were able to make some pretty significant changes there in July. Unfortunately, that's a time where many employers raised their pay and we're still struggling to compete. We are still struggling to retain employees because of that and are constantly evaluating the pay structure for our direct support professionals. One of the other things that I think is a a statewide and a nationwide issue is professionalizing the direct support professional position. It's not even classified as its own position. It's often lumped in with other healthcare workers and other um, nursing home workers. And we're going to continue advocating and pushing at the state and national level for that position to be more professionalized and for it to be fully understood the real scope of what that group of people do to support people with disabilities and keep them healthy and safe and integrate them into the community and truly change their lives. So it's a very underappreciated position by those who don't understand it. It's an incredibly appreciated position here at Stonebelt and in the field. And we need to work really hard to continue to advocate for fair wages and professionalization. Wow. From a historical perspective, you know, I remember, uh, you know, I've been retired from the newspaper almost three years now, and actually it's been three years. And I remember us doing a story even a couple of years before I retired about direct service professionals and uh, the need to upgrade um, just the status because of the important work that they do. Do you think there's been some progress? So, yeah, Bob, I, I this has been my battle cry for Oh, probably 10 years now that we really needed to upgrade the the status and the pay and the professionalization of this workforce. I think we are making progress. I think the Indiana legislators understand the significance of this workforce and what they're able to do. We have some real champions in in Indianapolis, and we have some champions in Washington, D.C., too. But it is an uphill battle. Most of the funding that we get in in this field is funded by Medicaid. And so Medicaid is not typically known to be, you know, the the most uh, generous paying paying source. So it's a battle that we're making progress on. We get we did, as Vita mentioned, we got we got an increase in our funding in uh, the 2019 uh, legislature. But that all kind of coincided with COVID and then the escalation of other wages. So we made some steps forward. We're going to have to keep pushing. This year, uh, legislators actually passed um, legislation for the 1102 task force to come up with recommendations this upcoming summer around the direct support professional workforce crisis so that next year they can, legislators can then um, possibly implement a statewide training for DSPs um, looking at 
some sort of certification and a registry, as well as some sort of workforce pipeline? Should we team up with like an Ivy Tech? Um, and the Department of Education is looking at um, a specific diploma track to maybe have our CNAs that are being trained in high school to then become a DSP once they graduate. So there is some momentum, but it's, as we all know, um, it, it takes time when we're working with government. Hannah, if you could uh, expand on that just a bit, because, you know, I, I, I like to make sure that our audience understands exactly what we're talking about. So what a, a direct service professional, what would a job description for someone in that job be? Yeah, so, um, and Leslie might be able to give a little bit more into this because she employs um, direct support professionals. So these are the people that are working with Hoosiers with disabilities on a daily basis. They're the ones that are, you know, helping them cook, clean, um, bathe, get dressed, but then also helping them with those workforce skills, getting them to work, taking to the grocery store. If they want to see a movie because the movie theaters are now open, they can go um, to the movie theater. So they're helping them live their best life and just doing the day-to-day tasks, giving them their medication, making sure that they're thriving and um, living their best life. Okay. Leslie? Yeah, I would would concur with that. We have about 320 direct support professionals and they, it does, is very individualized because not everybody we support needs the same thing. So while one person might be working on maybe some more basic skills, another person, as Hannah says, is working on helping them be, you know, oriented to their job and making sure that, you know, that they, they are looking good uh, for work, that they are, that they are understanding their, their work needs. Others are looking at how do we get folks out and being a part of the community as volunteers. We have a great program here called Hand in Hand, where uh, people that we support go out and pick up food donations on doorsteps in neighborhoods and then take it to the community kitchen. So we're always looking for ways to help individuals contribute to the betterment of the community and they do that or they can do that largely because of the support they get from their direct support professionals. Yeah. I think you can see how important that would be for a client to have someone like that. Um, So a couple questions have come in. Our audience is getting a a little bit more active now as they do sometimes late in the show. Um, One question is, can you give us an idea of the size of Stone Belt now compared to 20 years ago? How does this change and how do you plan to plan and connect with the community? So, so yeah, I was here in 1979 and I, most people think about Stone Belt as being this building we're sitting in on 10th street, but we only do about 5% now of what we did do in the community here in this building. At that time I started, I would say probably 85% of what we were doing was in this building and we had, we might've had a hundred clients and, I don't know, maybe 50 staff. Today, we serve uh, 300, or I'm sorry, we serve 1,300 individuals, and we have a staff of of 500. By the way, we need a staff of 550, (laughs) but we have almost 500 staff. So the programs that have, have really grown a lot is our residential services. As I talked about, you know, closing of the institutions meant people wanted to come and live in communities, either the ones they came from or to find a community of choice. So at that time we first opened group homes and then later started expanding our supported living program because that's a 24 seven program. There's a lot of staffing needs in that, in that side of thing. But then our employment and our lifelong learning programs are also quite large. We've had um, up to four or 500 people that have participated in those programs at one time. So we, we have a lot more expansive reach than most people realize because they think that Stone Belt is this this building up here on 10th Street. Right. We also serve uh, Bedford and Columbus communities as well. All right, Sarah. Apologize there, I was having trouble getting um, my computer unmuted. So uh, one of the other questions we got, what industries have the highest employment of people with disabilities in this state? I, I'm not sure if I know that for sure. I would say that traditionally people with disabilities have been hired into retail and restaurant industries, 
But I would also say that that's another trend or thing that's changing. That was more probably as people were first starting to be employed. What I see now is it's such an individualized approach to supporting people to find the job that they want to do and can do. And so that's much more expansive. And I think we've become more sensitive to looking beyond, you know, uh, food service and, and that kind of thing, because people have skills beyond that and people have interests beyond that. And we don't need to pigeonhole people into one particular sector. We have a lot of people working out at Cook as, as employees. We have people working at IU. We have people working, you know, in various businesses throughout the community that do, do a variety of, of, of things. I would also add is that it's not um, unusual for somebody's first job to be in a restaurant or retail or entry level at any business. The thing I think we need to improve the system on is helping people continue to advance their careers and not necessarily get stuck in the first job that they got. But as they gain skills, find advancement either within their company or somewhere else. We have seen a lot more um, manufacturing companies start to employ Hoosiers with disabilities um, and that they're really, really good at um, being on the manufacturing line. Um, so we have seen an uptick in that. And then just in the healthcare industry. So IU Health has been a really, really great partner with the Arc of Indiana and in employing Hoosiers with disabilities to help um, you know, with nutrition, restocking um, the hospital rooms, patient transport. We've had um, a big uptick in just, um, especially IU Health, but just different industries across the state of Indiana, um, healthcare industries employing people with disabilities. Wanted to follow up um, with uh, Deanne, if she's still on the call with us. Deanne, are you still here? I think we may have lost her. Um, So I'll I wanted to, again, we have about five minutes to go in the program. So I wanted to give everybody an opportunity. And uh, Hannah, I think I want to start with you to, uh, you know, look toward the future. I mean, what, what keeps you up at night about the work that you're doing? And what are the things that you really want Hoosiers to know about the Arc of Indiana and how they can help um, people with disabilities? I think the biggest thing is share your story with legislate with legislators. I mean, I am only one person at the state house that has to talk to 150 legislators and, you know, educate them on what is happening um, across the state and um, advocate for Hoosiers with disabilities, especially around the workforce crisis for direct support professionals, but also trying to employ Hoosiers with disabilities. So um, I would just say, share your stories with your legislators and get Get to know them, start that relationship with them. They're everyday people. It's not like they're, um, you know, they're mean people or too busy to talk to you. Um, they really like to hear from their constituents. And if you need help um, connecting with your legislature, with your legislator, you can contact me um, at any time. My email is H-C-A-R-L-O-C-K at arcind.org and I can help connect you with your legislature with your legislator and your state representative senator um, because I would think that that's the my hardest part of my job is making sure that we're getting all the stories across to every legislator that know that they're impacting Hoosiers with disabilities yeah I don't, I don't want to uh, make this a sensitive question but you know in the last oh I don't know five to ten years it seems like there's been a lot more division in politics. Has that had any impact on um, on your work and on on the work of trying to make sure that you know we get good laws passed for people with disabilities? At the national level, yes. I mean, there is always division when it comes to politics, and I feel like it's getting even more divided. Um, But the good thing about Indiana is 99% of our bills are bipartisan, and they pass bipartisanly. And um, 
a disability issue is everybody's issue. It's not just Republican or Democrat. And so it's a great cause to get behind. And we've seen a lot of momentum, even though it's been stalled at the national level. Um, a lot of our different leaders at the state level have made um, the disability population a priority. So I feel like no matter what, Indiana has made us a priority and we really haven't seen that split. And I hope this next election cycle, um, we continue to gain that momentum, um, just making sure that disability issues are everybody's issues. They're not just one political parties. And we continue to frame um, that conversation. Um, so I, I have a, a really good feeling of where Indiana is headed. Um, but yes, I do have a little bit of a headache around DC because it's hard to get things done out there with how polarized the political system is. Gotcha. I want to go to Bitta next, and and that way we'll give Leslie the last word in this program today. We've got about two minutes to go. So, Bitta, what's keeping you up at night, thinking about uh, all your responsibilities? Hiring staff, to have enough staff to provide the supports our clients need, to get back to pre-pandemic quality levels, and to get more clients that are still staying at home with their families back into services. We've got a lot to build back. We have an excellent team here at Stonebelt that has the knowledge to do that. We just need to keep plugging away at it and hope that we can keep going forward now and not have to take a couple steps back as we're trying to go forward. All right. And Leslie, for the last uh, 90 seconds or so. Um, We've talked a lot about the direct support professionals, but they are led by really quality leaders in the organization. I am delighted that the board has chosen Bitta to be the next leader of Stonebelt. By the way, only the fourth executive director, CEO of Stonebelt ever. Well, we got to keep that pipeline going. We need to be bringing people into this work and getting them excited about continuing to grow in leadership areas. So that's going to be a big focus of what Stonebelt and other organizations need to do. There's a lot of competition for talented folks, and we want to we do a lot of growing from within, uh, but we want to we want to keep that going. And I I feel very confident that Stonebelt is in very good um, position right now. The group of leaders we have here is just fantastic. They're long term employees with a lot of commitment. We need to grow the leaders behind them so that we continue to see this organization and our industry thrive. All right. And you, I assume you're going to stay involved in some way. In some ways. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You don't have to commit today. <laughs> well, I want to thank again, Leslie Green for being here with us. She's the current Stonebelt CEO. She was the third Stonebelt CEO and she'll be retiring uh, also, Bitta DeWeese, who's the incoming Stonebelt CEO. She's been with the organization 31 years, and she will be the fourth CEO of Stonebelt. Also, Deanne Hart, the, the American Council of the Blind of Indiana, Legislative and Advocacy Committee Chair, and Hannah Carlock from the Ark of Indiana. Thanks, all, thanks to all of our guests for being here. That's all we have time for. I want to thank our my co-hosts, Sarah Whitmire and producers Benta Boutier, and Holden Absher, and also engineer John Bailey. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.